Well, last week uh, we spent some time in an absolutely fantastic part of Scripture, uh, and it was um, important that we did because, I'd, as I had said last week, that Paul's been spending a lot of time on some really big, difficult, heavy topics um, in the previous chapters, which for us has spanned back a few months. And they're topics that, though very important, clearly they're important because Paul had it written down and wanted some instruction on them, so they're important topics for sure, uh, but they're not the most important topics. They're things that we might even agree or disagree on, topics that we can be gracious and open with one another about, but as we went, in, went into chapter 15, we went into the truth that is non-negotiable, the truth that he says is of first importance. And that truth, of course, as we saw last week, is the truth that the good news of Jesus Christ is real. It is true. The Christ has come to this earth to save sinners. He has come to the earth to redeem even his own enemies. And of all the things that we've looked at in the last few months and things we've kind of picked apart and tried to grapple with, the most important thing of all those is that great truth. And Paul is beginning the close of his letter by bringing them back full circle, saying, look, we've talked about a lot of things. There's a lot of dysfunction going on in your lives, a lot of struggle, there's a lot of sin, but I need to spend these last few paragraphs reminding you of the most important thing, the good news of Jesus Christ. And he wants to give them a hope that they can hang on to, a hope that they can look forward to, a hope that they can build their life on, a hope that is going to give them the confidence to be the people and be the church that he desires them to be. So this morning he's continuing those thoughts, and he's going to go deeper into the truth of the good news, the truth of the resurrected Christ. And so this morning, do you guys need some good news today? I need some good news today, and we're going to get some good news today. And I'm thankful that Paul was mindful. He, he knew the Corinthians knew the gospel, but he doesn't assume that they're always thinking about it. I know you guys know the gospel, but I don't assume, because I don't do it myself, I don't assume that we're thinking about it all the time. I know that other things take the place of first importance in our life. And so I'm grateful that Paul had the wherewithal to close out a difficult letter like this, and I'm grateful that today we get to reap the benefit of his thoughtfulness as he encourages the church and helps to bring them the confidence they need to move forward as a church. So let's pray and ask the Lord to lead us and guide us and just to, to help find a home in our hearts for this important truth. Heavenly Father, there are many realities in our life that occupy our minds, our time, that bring us worry, anxiety, frustration, sadness, also joy and excitement and passion. And these things aren't unimportant. Uh, they're not things that we should just sweep under the rug, pretend like they don't happen. Um, as Christians, we don't, um, we don't check our brains at the door. We don't check our emotions at the door. Uh, you've given us our five senses. You've given us minds and hearts that feel and think and experience and so we don't ignore these things. But what we want to do, Lord, is we want to be able, by the truth of your word and by your spirit working in us, we want to bring these things into focus through the lens of the gospel, 
we want to have a, a firm foundation that helps us navigate through the ups and downs, helps us discern what we're feeling, what we're thinking. It helps us discern what we're to do in this life, how we're to spend our time, how we're to spend our, our money, how to spend our, uh, our, our evenings and our mornings, how to fill our calendars, how to fill our minds, how we're entertained. Uh, just all the things we give ourselves to. We want the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the truth of the resurrected Jesus to be the thing that informs us, transforms us, and is the foundation by which we plan all that we do in our life. So help us today, as Paul's aim was with the Corinthians, to help right the ship. Going to uh, look again and calibrate their compass their true north. Help us to do that. By your spirit, lead us into this great and amazing truth today. We pray in the powerful and mighty name of Jesus, the risen Lord. Amen. Well, I'm going to take uh, this section here. We're going to start in verse 12, chapter 15. I'm going to take this in a few different parts today as we go, just kind of chipping away one by one. But in chapter 15, verse 12, here's how Paul continues. He says, now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. Then those also have been fallen asleep in Christ. They've also perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul is saying if this faith in Christ is only to help us in this life, just to live good, healthy lives, to live good moral standards, then we're just pitiful people. Our life and our faith is just pathetic if it only aids us in this life. Now, Corinth, uh, as you guys, most of you know from the last few months, Corinth was a, a Greek town and uh, with lots of, obviously, then therefore, Greek philosophy in their background. And the Greeks had a lot of popular philosophies, things that taught that the soul and the spirit is good and the body, everything material and physical is bad. It's something that we're looking forward to escape from, that this is like a prison cell. This kind of inhibits us from experiencing real, true life, which is only found in the spirit realm. And so the Greeks taught that there was an afterlife, but that it was all spiritual. And this was just kind of this, kind of a, almost a purgatory type place, maybe even a hell on earth type of a thing. And so they looked forward to uh, the idea of an afterlife, but not one that was physical. They believed that this was just something that was temporary, that we would all eventually die and be released from the prison cell of a body. But Paul here is drawing some logical lines for them and lines that he's going to build a, a case for something even greater than even the logic that he wants to present to them. But he starts off with this logic saying, look, if Christ has been risen, well, why are you saying that we won't be risen? 
There's no, where's the, there's the dots that connect. Christ is risen, but we're not going to. That doesn't seem to make sense. And if you're saying, well, then we're not going to be risen, well, then he's saying then Christ can't be risen. Because, again, there's no logical conclusion there. And if Christ hasn't risen, that means he failed. He hasn't really actually conquered death. And if Christ failed and he hasn't actually risen, then your faith is pointless. You're putting your trust and faith in a, in a God who's still in the grave. His body's still there. And some of these guys believe that maybe his body was still there, but he was resurrected, just his spirit. And Paul's like, well, that's, a, that's risky business right there, just believing that dead body is actually alive somewhere. Where's the confidence in that Lord if his body's still somewhere and you just have to trust that his spirit is somewhere else? Something you can't, there's no tangible evidence, there's nothing you can actually hold fast to. But if Christ did fail and he hasn't risen, then your faith is pointless. And, and if your faith is only for this life, if you don't believe in an afterlife, then there is no resurrection, period, and it's just for good living or good morals, you're just wasting it. You're just wasting your life. Why, why would you do something like that? And it's a common question that comes up. I've had lots of friends over the years that, and you guys have probably had something similar like this, your friends who look at your life and they don't believe in Christ, they don't believe in God or an afterlife, and they say, well, what if you're wrong? Aren't, don't you feel like you're missing out on all this kind of different fun and pleasure and all this enjoyment that, that, that I get to enjoy? Maybe even this morning, maybe you've, you've thought those very things. You're a believer, but you just kind of wonder, but what if we're wrong? Or maybe you don't believe this morning. You go, yeah, that's a good question. I've wondered that. What if we're wrong? What if, what if this is just all fairy tale, and we're just obeying a bunch of laws and rules and living what other people see is just kind of this uptight, boring life? And Paul actually validates that thought process here. That's what's so fascinating about it. He says, look, if you don't believe in Christ, this thought process actually makes perfect sense. It's right for a non-believer to think that living our lives for Jesus is foolish. That's actually a logical thought process. If you don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, then it would make sense that you think that their fo his followers are fools. That makes sense. That's actually good, healthy thinking. You're connecting the dots. Because in the view of someone who doesn't believe in Christ, Jesus didn't conquer death. He didn't raise from the dead. He's just a fairy tale. And so Paul agrees. Yeah, if Christ didn't conquer death, then our faith is futile, and we're fools. You should actually feel sorry for us. We're the most pitiful people on the planet, Paul just said. So he actually validates the thought process of a non-believer who's sitting there going, hey, you know what? Like, if he didn't raise from the dead, like, you're kind of a fool. And Paul's like, you're right. You're right. If Christ church, did not raise from the dead, then we are fools, and we're living foolish lives. We are wasting our life on a fairy tale. If there is no resurrection, if Christ didn't actually live, if he didn't actually die, if he didn't actually raise from the grave, then we are wasting our lives on this hocus-pocus as Paul even says, if that's true, we're still dead in our sins. If that's true, we have no future. We have no hope for the forgiveness of our sins. If there's an afterlife, if there's a God, or if there's gods, and if we feel like we've broken some law somewhere against some God who exists, we should be fearful. 
We should be fearful of that God or those gods because we've broken well-known laws of the universe by our hatred, our bitterness, our thievery, our jealousy. We know we've broken even just natural laws. We should be fearful if God didn't actually raise from the dead. If Jesus is not who he says he is, we should be fearful of our future and we should be pitied by the world. Our faith and all of our hope hinges on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If it didn't happen, our whole life is worthless. Tim Keller actually says that the resurrection is the hinge upon which the story of the whole world pivots upon. Because resurrection doesn't just validate the claims and power of Christ, and it does that, but it also validates our faith in Christ. It validates even our choice to follow after him. As Peter said in John chapter 6, where else should we go? You, Jesus, have the words of eternal life. What else would we do with our life other than to follow you? If you really have the words of eternal life, clearly we're going to follow you. Why would we do anything else in life? So we see that the resurrection of Jesus and what we believe about it radically changes our life. If you don't believe it happened, then you'd be a fool to follow him. But if you believe it happened, you'd be a fool not to follow him. Where else are you going to go? What else are you going to do with your life that's meaningful? If you believe that a man rose from the dead and conquered sin and death, and then you chose not to follow him, you're going to find something else more meaningful than that? There's nothing. There's nothing. And beyond even that, it validates our future. The truth of the resurrection is the only thing, the only thing, church, that gives us hope that someday this world is going to be different than what it is right now. The resurrection is the only hope we have that our future is going to be good. That somehow all the stuff we see in this life here and now, the destruction, the sin, the death, the racism, the sexism, the evil, the tyranny, the murder, the resurrection is the only hope that we have that true justice at some point will come to pass. That everything that is evil will be destroyed. Everything that was wrong will be vindicated. The resurrection is the only hope that we have that someday this life will be different. We hope it's going to be different in this life. We hope that things are going to change, things are going to turn, the economy is going to turn around, our job situation will turn, our kids will change their behaviors, our spouse will start loving us more or differently. We have hope that these things are going to happen, but we have no guarantee that they're going to happen. But the resurrection gives us those guarantees that someday all those things will change. Think about, for a moment, the wrongs that have been done to you the ways people have hurt you, the ways that you've hurt other people, the tragedies that have experienced, been experienced by you or the tragedies that you read on the news every single day, the heartaches, the illnesses that you deal with, the death of loved ones that you've either experienced or that you fear. All those things, without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Church, we can just simply expect more of the same. More of the same. More sin, more hurt, more pain, more suffering. 
Without the resurrection, we have no hope for ourselves, and we have no hope to offer anyone else. If our faith is just for this life, Paul says, worthless. Our faith is not about our best life now. Our faith is about a future hope that goes beyond this life and lasts for eternity. Our faith in Christ isn't based, though, on fairy tale or wishful thinking even. Even though that's the claim of many, and I know that you've probably had a lot of those conversations, and maybe you think that or have thought that before. But see, Jesus didn't just die and then disappear, leaving his body in the ground and leaving us wondering if he actually did conquer death, but just left his body and went off as a spirit being. We don't have to wonder if he was just whisked off as some disembodied spirit. That would honestly be a horrible thing to put your faith in. Hoping and wishing that it's true with no actual foundation for our faith. And though we call it faith, and it is faith, our faith actually has historical backing, has historical evidence. The Bible itself is the most reliable ancient manuscript in all of history of all literature. It far passes every critical test of legitimacy with flying colors, if you approach it objectively, without your preconceived notion that the Bible is full of fairy tales. Paul now alludes to that even in his own way in here. This is why he's getting to the Corinthians and saying, look, I want to I remind you of evidence that Jesus really actually rose. He doesn't want to just say, just take my word for it. Because he knows that they have a philosophy in their culture, this dualistic philosophy that nature and matter is bad and spirit is good. And so, so he can't just say, you just got to trust me. No, he wants to give him some, some evidence. And so this is where he goes. He says, he tells the Corinthians, look, 500 people saw the risen Christ. Don't just take my word for it. 500 people. Not just one or two crazies that believe anything he said because they just became obsessive with him. It's not just one or two crazy people. It's not even four or five people who are making money off the claim. That would be suspect. Hey, these four guys, listen to them. And you're looking and they're, you know, rolling around with the nicest chariots in town. You know, they got spinners on the chariots and whatever. You know, like, he's not saying, like, look, you can trust those four or five guys that are clearly making a profit off of this. He's not saying that. You know, in our modern journalism, which I know is always being rightly scrutinized, but if you only have one source, you probably shouldn't print that. Right? You know you're going to get that hashtag fake news thing, you know? If you have one source, you probably shouldn't print that. If you have two sources that are separate, independent, and can collaborate, corroborate, you're going, all right, this is more reliable. We can probably print this. And that's just for two. But if you're a journalist, you want to get as many witnesses as you can. The more witnesses, especially when they're unconnected, the better, right? And that just makes sense in journalism. Imagine if there's a story that comes out in the news today. And there's just one witness to it. We've seen this a lot in our media the last few months. It's hard to build a case. It's probably wrong to build a case. But when there's 10, and they can all corroborate, and there's factual evidence, all these things, oftentimes it's open and shut. You have 10 different people that have seen the same exact event. And Paul's saying, look, there was 500 500 different people. Now imagine a news story that has 500 witnesses 
that are disconnected in their path of life. You go back to the time of Christ, and you have 500 witnesses. Imagine today, you see a news account. You're watching the news, and 500 people witness something, people disconnected from one another, moms and dads and businessmen, homeless, young, old, upper class, middle class, lower class, every uh, background of, of race and religion, no common bond other than we saw that. We're different. I've never met these people, but we all saw the same thing. Imagine that story is on the news, whatever that thing is, a car accident, 500 witnesses. You're going to believe that story. Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, had hundreds of people that actually saw him risen after they saw him die. Even his own brother testified that he had risen. Now, this is significant because early on, James kind of doubted a little bit. Later on, James believed, and eventually James became the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and eventually James was executed for his faith in his brother, his half-brother. I was uh, at a baseball game once with a, my school-grade friend, uh, my friend David. Uh, we grew up together uh, from kindergarten, and he doesn't believe in Jesus, and he's, uh, he's a pretty colorful guy. Um, really, I, I just love hanging out with the guy. I love catching baseball games with him, and we went to a game once, and um, the whole, and I didn't, <laughs> I didn't try to orchestrate this conversation. I was hoping it would go in the direction of talking about faith, and especially as we grew up, you know, in a Catholic school together, and, and uh, he just, like, I mean, just talked my ear off all game long in a really good way. It was so much fun, and all he wanted to do was ask me about Jesus, and we're sitting there talking, and he's arguing with me. He's like, he's trying to catch me, you know, and at one point he says, he goes, but what if this is all like fairy tales? Have you ever read the Gospel of Thomas, and this, this, and this, and he's got all these things, and, and I said, David, these are, these are great observations, and I totally understand, you know, your, your hesitation. His older brother's name is Devin, and I said, David, what if you claim to be God? Do you think Devin would follow you? And he's like, <laughs> yeah, right. I said, no, I'm, I'm serious. And he's like, he goes, yeah, I'm serious too. No, he wouldn't. I said, well, how come? He goes, because he knows me. He grew up with me. I said, so if you claimed that you were perfect in every way, you don't think Devin would follow you? Even if you're a really good guy? He goes, no, because he's seen the behind the scenes. I'm going, all right. Now, what if you died and you rose again? And he goes around and he starts telling people, my brother rose from the grave. And let's say you didn't really. It was just a hoax. Do you think Devin would do that? And he's like, well, no, not unless you can make a buck off of it. And I said, okay, <laughs> makes sense. I said, do you think Devin would die for it? And he goes, no, why? I said, do you think he'd be poor for it? He goes, no, why? I said, because that's what James did. And that's what every follower of Jesus did. Do you think that all these people, David, do you think you can fool lots of people who know you, who wouldn't make a dollar off of you, and actually would die for a lie? He's like, I see your point. And he's like, I, I never thought of it that way. And so when we see that Paul is even using this very argument, he goes, look, 500 people, including his own brother. If there's someone who could un invalidate this story and this claim, it'd be his own brother. So Paul mentions that even there's still people alive today that have seen him. So, so Paul's not even conveniently writing this after that generation passed away. It's like 200 years later, and he's like, oh, yeah, oh, oh, and all the witnesses, oh, they're dead, so you can't talk to them. He's not even conveniently telling his story later when the story can't be corroborated. He's telling the story, and he's telling the Corinthians, look, there's people alive today you can talk to. 
You, you can meet these people. They live today. I'm not making this up. I'm not conveniently saying, oh, yeah, I don't, I don't have their phone number. Sorry, you can't ask them. He's saying, look, there's people alive today that have seen what I've seen. I'm not asking you to have blind faith. I'm telling you that you have factual reason to believe that Christ really actually rose from the dead. Paul knows that his claim could easily be refuted because these people are still alive today, but he also knows that his claim could easily be verified. Imagine if I had a crazy story, something crazy happened to me, and, and we're texting. I'm, I'm saying texting or email because this is a written letter. Maybe you live across the country, and I'm telling you this crazy story, and you just, you just don't believe me. You're going, this is insane. You're crazy, Joby. We knew you were crazy, but now we know you're crazy. And, and if I told you, look, look, our whole church saw this. I can send you their email addresses. You can ask them. And then you go, well, yeah, but that's your church. You know, like, no, 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 it wasn't just them. My neighbors saw the same thing. I'll give you their email. They're alive. You can ask them. People on the street, strangers, we all saw it. It was right out front of our church, and this crazy thing happened, and we were all getting out of church, and there's people there. And I can give you, I can give you their email addresses. They're still alive. You can ask them yourself. I'm setting myself up for major failure, or I'm actually setting them up, hopefully, for faith and belief. And so Paul's saying, look, I, I want to I prove to you, I want to convince you that this happened. There's a noted, respected atheist scholar named Anthony Flew. He wrote this about the resurrection. And when you have, there's, there, are, there are some atheist scholars out there that are, are, are objective, where they actually are, are biblical critics, but really do the best that they can to be very objective with the way they approach the Bible. And he's one of them. And he says, the evidence of the resurrection is far better than for any other claimed miracle in any other religion. So what he's saying is, the claim that Jesus rose from the dead is actually pretty valid. Compared to every other religion and all their claims of miracles that are kind of like, eh, nice try. This guy is saying the claim for the resurrection and the evidence for the resurrection is actually pretty solid. It's outstandingly different in quality and quantity of the evidence offered for the occurrence of most other supposedly miraculous events of other religions. That's crazy. Outstandingly different in quality and quantity of the evidence, not just claim, but the evidence. And so Paul is making his appeal to the Christians in Corinth. Christ is risen. He defeated death. It is factually provable. And so he goes on, and I'm going to cover... Um, the next few verses in a couple weeks, so we'll come back to it, but I want to read it to get context. So you can go back to 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has uh, come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. So I'm going to cover that more in depth in a, uh, in a couple weeks. But I want to look at this, verse 24. Then comes the end when he, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he's put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his, Jesus' feet. But when it says, Paul clarifies, all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he, God the Father, is accepted 
who put all things in subjection under him. He's saying, when I say he put all things under you, God didn't put himself under the feet of Jesus, just everything else. So Paul, I don't know why Paul had to clarify that, but <laughs> it's like, well, that makes sense. Uh, but verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him, God the Father, who put all things in subjection under him, Jesus, that God may be all in all. Now, there's a lot of stuff in there. <laughs> it's a big, thick part of Scripture. But what he is saying here is in the meantime, Christ is risen, he rose from the dead, and in the meantime, that very Christ, who full body has risen, he's going to rule and reign until the very end comes which we call the consummation of all things. Everything is consumed. When he finally, at that point, comes back to the earth, his second coming, he appears on the Mount of Olives, the very place that he was betrayed and arrested. He's going to reappear and where all of his enemies are going to be put underneath his feet. He's going to deliver the kingdom of God to the Father after destroying every single rule and authority and power, every single last bit, that has gone against him, he's going to destroy, put under his feet. Now this big part of scripture, if you want to follow along a little bit in your notes here, there's a few things that I just wanted to point out to kind of disassemble this and hopefully paint the picture of what Paul is saying. Firstly, what Paul is communicating to the Corinthians that the Son of God has been given a task. It is true that Christ has always had dominion, it's not that now all of a sudden he is, has the authority. John 1 says through him all things were made. Hebrews 1 says that, that he upholds the universe by the word of his power. But what Paul is saying, there's a specific plan for him, Jesus, to rule and reign not just simply from the outside as creator, but from within. In a very deeply personal, intrinsic way, he's going to rule and reign over the earth and his people. Now here's a very simplistic view just to kind of help us understand it a little bit, I hope. As a father, I can watch my sons play. I can be in the room, hearing them, watching them. I can listen to them play music. I might even give them some ideas. I'm sitting on the couch, they're sitting over on the drums and whatever, and I can kind of say, hey, try this. I can watch them play baseball, and I can even maybe coach them a little bit here and there. I observe when they succeed, I observe when they fail, I observe when they suffer. I'm involved, I'm personal, and I'm in control of the situations. I can call the shots of when it's, we've played music too long or when we have to go home from baseball. So I'm involved, I'm personal, I'm in control. So Jesus has always been involved. The Son of God's always been personal, uh, but maybe sort of a little bit more with the analogy of how I just described. Or, as a dad, I can step in and I can play music with them not just give them ideas, but I can play with them. We can actually succeed at different things together. We can actually suffer together. I'm not just watching or observing or giving them comforting words when they suffer, but I'm actually suffering with them. I laugh with them, next to them. I actually play catch with them, not just coach them. I'm not just simply a father watching his sons, but now I've become a brother to them, next to them, with them. And I'm still, just as I was before, I'm involved, I'm personal, I'm in control of the situation, but just now in a different way, in a far more realized way, a more tangible way. Even during Jesus' life, his kingship wasn't openly displayed 
We didn't quite understand it. And I don't want to make it sound like that first view is kind of this deistic view that God just pushes the domino. It's not like that at all. But in this way, where the Son of God comes into this life and becomes a man, ruling from within as one of us, this now all of a sudden makes manifestly plain and tangible his kingship and his lordship. He's always been the king. He's always been the Lord. But now it just becomes real to us and tangible. I mean, let this sink in, church, that a human being is going to rule the universe right alongside of us. We're going to see him. I mean, imagine sitting in your home in this great and glorious future, and Jesus comes over for dinner, and he's sitting there, and he's complimenting you on your cooking, hopefully. <laughs> and maybe he's, he's, you know, he's sees some photos on your wall, and he's asking, oh, what, you know, what's this here? Tell me about this. And what, not that he doesn't know, but you know what I'm saying. But you're just here. It's a human. It's a, it's a man. He's, he breathes with the lungs that you have. He has a, a heart that beats. He sees with the same kind of eyes you see. He, he has a sense of touch and taste and smell and sight. He's enjoying your food, just like he did with the disciples. Hey, you guys got any fish? Let's eat. And you're looking at this man, and you're, and you're thinking, this is the ruler of the universe. I've never met anyone like you. I've met some famous people. I've met some celebrities. I've met some professional athletes. I've, maybe you've met the President of the United States before, whatever. But you look at this. You rule the universe? How do you do that? You're a man just like me. It's amazing. He's not just this ethereal God that's out there. He's a, he's a God who came to be with us and live among us and conquered death for us. And he rose as a man. And now he rules and reigns as a man. The cross, number two in your notes, the cross brought about a new era of his rule. The cross crushed the ongoing power of sin and death in the world. His resurrection made plain to all that he is God. It proved that God's justice against evil has been done and will be done. And it proved the end is truly near. Number three, his ascension and simultaneous marching orders that he gives to the church signify also a new era. He now sits at the right hand of the Father, not as an onlooker, but one who came and conquered and has proven to the world that he has might and power and the authority given to the church to preach now as he ascended from the Mount of Olives and he gave the great commission to the church, that authority given to the church to preach now to the nations and our neighbors who are now no longer under the, uh, the unchallenged blindness of the kingdom of darkness, of its leader, Satan, who has had been deceiving the nations for millennia. We have marching orders now to preach to those nations and neighbors who are now no longer under that blindness. Fourthly, he sends out his people. There's going to be some from every tongue, tribe, and nation that are going to be saved. But it's going to be us that are going to be reaching those people, fulfilling the total task that was given to Jesus to accomplish as well as making his title of King of Kings. And when you think about that title, King of Kings, kings means plural nations. And until people from every tongue, tribe, and nation are actually worshiping him, that title isn't fully realized until people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation actually come to worship him. Then the fulfillment of that title, King of Kings, will be made sure and eternal. And fifthly, 
He'll then give the kingdom to the Father. When he comes and he does this, when he accomplishes what the Father gave him, the task that he gave him, then he's going to deliver the kingdom, give the kingdom to the Father, and then the Father will subject all things, of course, except for the Father himself, as Paul duly notes. He's going to subject all things underneath the feet of the Son. He's going to say, Son, I want you to rule and reign. Thank you for this gift you've completed. Well done, good and faithful servant. My son in whom I'm well pleased, you did it. And now I'm going to let you rule and reign with your people over the earth for all eternity. Now, why is this important for us to know? Church, we will not go and share the gospel until we ourselves are excited about it. Until we actually believe what actually happened to our Savior 2,000 years ago. Until we really believe it and we believe the implications of it. We believe how it affects our current faith and our future hope. Until we actually believe this, we're convinced. When we, until we understand that the depth and the vast expanse of this truth that Christ came and rose from the grave. Until we actually see that. Until we see how the gospel reaches into not just our lives and our physical being, but into every corner of existence of the entire creation of this universe. How it's going to affect everything from the depth of the sea to the height of the stars. Until we understand what the good news really is, we, we won't go. See, the gospel is not about making a few bad people good. That's what Paul's saying. If you think your, your faith is just for this life now, it's a joke. The gospel is not about making a few bad people good. The gospel is about making all things new. All things new. That's what the gospel is all about, to make all things brand new. From the very dust of the ground, the brokenness of this earth, the way we see our earth crumbling, the way we see humanity crumbling, all things. It says even the creation is groaning to be released from the curse. It's not just about us. It's about all of creation being made totally new. And that day is near. The day that Jesus returns as the victorious Lion of Judah and delivers then the kingdom to his Father as a job well done. And that all things that are sad will be made unsad. They'll be undone. All things that are evil will be destroyed. All wickedness will receive the punishment that it deserves. The irreversible punishment and destruction that it deserves. Every tear will be wiped away. Church, that's what the resurrection promises us. And until we're convinced that the entirety of our future is beyond incredible, we will never have a reason that actually convinces us to go share the good news with other people. We'll, sit, we'll have excuses. Oh, I can't. I don't know how. It's not my spiritual gift. I'm too afraid. I'm too this. I'm too that. We, we will find all kinds of reasons until we're actually convinced that this is true. But church... Your neighbors need you. Your coworkers need you. Your classmates need you. They need you to point them to the God who came to destroy their sin and purchase for them eternal life. They're not going to open a Bible on their own. You've got to be the Bible for them. And if we're not convinced that Christ actually died and actually rose, then we won't go. 
But Paul was convinced, however. And here's what he said in verse 29. What do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus when his life was being threatened? If the dead aren't raised, well, let us just eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Don't be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as it is right, and don't go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. A few of these interesting comments I'm actually going to cover the next time. But what he's saying here is, we know that Christ has been raised. We know that he rules and reigns. And we know that the battle has actually been won. And therefore, in the meantime, we don't just live aimlessly. We don't just go on living as if this is the only life we have, just eating and drinking for tomorrow we die. No, we risk. If we believe that Jesus really died and conquered death, then we risk. We risk friendships. We risk offending people. We risk having awkward conversations with our neighbors. We risk money and our future and hope and comfort and planning and dreams. We risk popularity and acceptance, and for some, we even risk our, our lives. We don't put our hope in things that just bring temporary treasure and comfort, but we put our hope in our future, a future that's been proven by the resurrection of Jesus. We put our hope and our pursuits in the sure future harvest of our life that as we look upon the first fruits of Jesus risen from the dead, we know that we have that same future. And we can risk that way because we believe. And if we believe, then we should say to ourselves, where else should we go? Who else should we follow? What else should we pursue? We have a Messiah, a Savior, who took upon the task from his Father to come and redeem people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, even enemies, including me and you. You were once an enemy that he came to save. And Jesus came to save every single person that God the Father gave him to save. He gave him a list. And he said to his father the night before he died, Father, I have kept them all, every single one. He accomplished the task. Every name that was written in the book of life before the foundation of the earth, Jesus said, I didn't miss any. I won. His blood purchased their salvation bumper to bumper. No gift receipt, no exchange program. He didn't go halvesies on it with you. Look, I'll, I'll, make, I'll die only if you're like obedient enough and then we can kind of meet halfway and then maybe I'll see you there. It's not what he did. The sale isn't pending. The warranty doesn't run out. He doesn't have to renew the lease. I don't have to renew the lease. The sale is final. It's complete. The salvation of every single name that's been written in the book of life with the blood of the Lamb of God has been paid in full church. It is finished. It has been finished. There's nothing else that needs to be done. It has been finished. He's conquered with the power that he has. The power of sin and death has been conquered on the cross. He's poured out his spirit upon his people. He ascended up to heaven where he now rules and reigns and now intercedes and prays for you. He prays for you that you would have the boldness to go and share the gospel. He's praying for you to do that. He intercedes on your behalf. He is ruling and reigning in the heavens right now, praying that we would go, 
That we would invite our neighbors into our homes, invite our friends that don't believe into our homes and into our lives. That we would incarnate ourselves just as he incarnated himself from afar into this place. We would incarnate our lives and not stay distant from our neighbors, but we would go into their lives. And we'd invite them into our lives. Jesus is praying now for you that you would do this. But he knows that you're afraid. He knows I'm afraid. And so he gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us his word. He gives us these assurances of our future so that we would have the boldness to actually go, to actually obey, to actually believe the foolish plan of God to use simpletons like us to see people saved. The foolishness of God is actually his wisdom. It shows his wisdom. It shows his power. And we believe that his justice once and for all is going to be satisfied. His patience and delayed justice is going to come to an end at some point and he's going to put all of his enemies under his feet. And that's what gives us the boldness and confidence to go, to have faith in this Christ. That he will deliver the complete and finalize and totally purchase kingdom to the Father, presenting to the Father people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And this people is going to be Jesus' own reward. Church, you are the reward given to Jesus from the Father. That's, that's crazy to me. A gift to Jesus from every tongue, tribe, and nation, including, hopefully, by God's grace and by your obedience, your neighbors. The Father gives Jesus a gift, this people, a bride, a bride to be one with forever and ever, an inheritance for him to enjoy and for us to enjoy. And the command... Christ gives us is this message to go. It is a false dichotomy to think that some Christians go and some Christians stay and pray. That's false. Every Christian is called to go. Every Christian is called to go. The Great Commission did not say, now therefore some of you go and make disciples, others stay and pray for them. No, it was you go into the nations, make disciples, teach people. We all go. In our own way, it doesn't look like the person next to you. They might reach dozens, you might reach one or two. They might be great speakers. You know how to open your home and make some killer tacos. I'm just saying, like that, we're just to go. The Great Commission is not a great suggestion. It's the Great Commission. Church, you've been commissioned. You've been commissioned from God on high. And your Messiah prays for you every single moment of your life that you would go. There's people out there that need to be saved and they need to hear the gospel. They need to hear preaching from you. And I don't mean like preaching, preaching, you know, like giving a sermon, but I mean you need to invite them in your life so they can see the gospel in action and, and they can hear the gospel come out of your mouth. But if you don't go, they're not going to be saved. That's what he's, Paul says to the Romans in, uh, in uh, Romans 11. How are they going to be saved if we don't go? We have to go. We have to go. And so he just wants to give them the confidence. Look, your faith is not just fairy tale. There's factual evidence that Jesus is risen. So therefore, go. Believe this and go. And so as I close this morning, I just want to, I want to ask, I want all of us to ask, are you Christian? Are you a disciple? I didn't ask if you're a good disciple. That's not, that's not my question. We're all growing at our different rates and in different ways and we're making mistakes and it's, it's just it's how it is. But are you a disciple? Are you trying to be a disciple? Do you at least want to be a disciple? Not just someone who believes in Jesus, but 
a follower? Do you want to follow him? Are you willing to follow him? Because guess what? God has divinely put you in your neighborhood. He's divinely put you in your extended family. I know you've got questions for him later. Why? But he's put you in your extended family. He's put you divinely in your workplace, in your school. You know when Jesus said, um, he said, you didn't choose me, but I chose you. That same Jesus could very rightly say, you did not choose your neighbors, but I chose your neighbors for you. You didn't choose your coworkers, but I chose your coworkers for you. I want you to believe that. I want you to believe that God has set ahead of you every good work that you would walk in, including the very neighborhood you're in, the place you work, the place you go to school. Paul says years later to the Corinthians, again in a different letter, 2 Corinthians, that we should be ministers of reconciliation, ambassadors for Christ. So church, I want to pray now that God would help us to make room in our hearts for those who don't believe in the resurrected Jesus. That we would make room in our budgets to invite people in our homes and have them over for dinner or coffee or whatever. And that we would make room in our calendars to invite those people into our lives. That we would go as ambassadors. If we believe that Jesus really rose, that should change how we act, what we do. And so I want to pray that God would help us make room in our hearts for those who don't have Christ in their hearts. Let's pray. Father, um, just as I said that, it came to mind something that my mom always tells me. She says if Satan can't get you to sin, he'll cause you to be busy. And I know when it comes to evangelism, that's very true. We can live our good lives, our good Christian lives. We can live after Christ as if he's only for this life and obedience in the here and now and hang out with all our Christian friends and do our Christian things. And we get so busy that we don't make room for people on the outside, people that need to know the truth. We have our reasons, we have our excuses, and we have a lot of real things that are realities of you know work and schedules, but help us to not get so busy that we stop being about our Father's business. Help us to cut out good things in our life to make way for better things. Help us to take inventory over how we schedule our, our, our budget, our mornings, our evenings, our lunch times, our conversations. Help us, Lord. We believe that your son actually rose out of the grave. And so, Father, help us to put our money where our mouth is, to put our time where our mouth is. Help us to be equipped to go, to have confidence and boldness to go. It's not fear man, but to fear God. We thank you, Father. We thank you that you don't leave us wondering. You've given us even historical um, facts and evidence 
that yes, we still have faith, but we have facts and evidence that we can find assurance in. So help us, Lord, change our hearts, open our hearts, that we would make room in our hearts for those who don't know you. Teach us to love them. We thank you, Lord, so much. And it's by your grace that we ask that you do these things for us, by the power of your word working in us and your Holy Spirit empowering us. It's in the mighty name of Jesus we pray and ask all these things. Amen.